This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Min Lee, he's the CEO at CityLink.ai. He's here with me uh, here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event in Washington. This concept of a smart city, you know, that's that's very much top of mind. It's easy to say, but what is it? Tell us what it is. You know, our version is a digital city, and it's all about the citizen, you know, creating a frictionless commerce and improving the quality of life. So everything in the future is going to be digital, everything from your calendars to your activities to actually having artificial intelligence to predict and support your intent. And more importantly, you start to get a network of machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence bots, if you will, to optimize the supply chain to support those intents within a digital city. So CityLink AI is a technology company that links the data around people, places, activities, and things. And it's an operating system to make that data more accessible and more useful using our, we call our EVE, your virtual enterprise artificial intelligence platform. So it's all about the citizen engagement. And you kind of take a step back and think about Disney. Everything about Disney is about the guest experience. Right. So what we're doing is taking that approach and bringing it to many cities, many university towns, and create that environment 24-7 to create basically what we call it simple, convenient, and fun. All right. So convenience comes at a cost to some extent, both an actual cost and also you, know, you talk about transparency. And we've talked a lot uh, at this conference about access, access to information and access to data. How do you ensure that it's safe, secure, and that everyone's privacy uh, is taken into account? Yeah, that's a very, very big topic. You can imagine all the large companies like Amazon that you mentioned and Google are all tackling this uh, same issue. We are actually building a, a privacy model first. So the idea of having the ability to opt in once or opt in and own your own data, have your own private personal assistant, your private clouds that follow you using our platform, Eve, your virtual enterprise, and the ability to actually archive and delete the data and manage your own data is where we're, we're moving towards. So the idea there is how do we level the playing field and push the information, the ownership, and responsibility back to the citizens, back to the local environment versus a one place where everybody is going to you know, one or mm -hmm. two very large corporations. So we call that hyper-localization. Ming, I want to ask you, too, though, about development uh, in terms of building these cities. Much easier to kind of build a connected city from the ground up. And I'm just curious about uh, the obstacles that need to be overcome to kind of take our old cities and bring them and make them new and make them much more connected than they have been. Uh, that's a great question. In fact, we, we face that every day. And I think you have to take a step back and take a holistic approach to this. So think about it from a consortium in a partnership perspective, who's going to pay for all of this? So that's how we think about it. So when we come in, we bring the capital. We have a practical, 
market-driven environment that has a real return on impact investing. At the same time, because we're also a commercial real estate investor and mm-hmm. developer, we understand the hurdle to build, finance, operate an environment. In fact, we're building a smart uh, district out in Gramercy District outside of uh, Washington, D.C., Coincidentally, only 11 miles from where National Landing will be, right on the Silver Line out in Loudoun County. But more importantly, you actually have to bring in everybody. In this case, we bring the tool set. We bring the capital. (laughs) We bring our partners. Wave Capital Partners is one of our capital providers. So that holistic approach is the only way you can actually move the ball because you have to optimize the resources available in that local environment. Can I just follow for a second? Just a quick question. I'm just curious, geographically, globally, is there someone, some country, some area that's going to lead in the development of these types of cities? You know, in the United States, I think it has to be capital-driven and commercial-driven with a partnership with university and governments. So unlike you know, other countries, we actually have to have return on investments and we have to think about an economically viable solution. It is great to think you can go green 100%, but if you cannot underwrite it and finance it and attract the impact investors to drive feasible and sustainable business model, it just doesn't go. So we're focusing on the U.S. Mm-hmm. There's $3.5 trillion in commercial real estate market in the U.S., our model is simple. We're actually zero in asset, but we want to digitize the people, the places, the things, and activities in a hyper-localized environment um, and actually give the power back to the citizen. That's that's only available now because the ubiquity of technology. Right. In, you know, ten years ago, you wouldn't be able to do this because it cost you tens of millions of dollars to achieve what we're able to do today in a small um, set of investments. Yeah, that's great. Minley, CEO at CityLink AI, here with me in Washington at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event. Because when you're worried, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry. All right, Carol. So I know you're not worried about anything. You're always happy. You always get a lot of sleep on the way back uh, from London. Uh, I'm joined now by someone who is helping us put AI into perspective. He's got a new book out. He's Daniel Wagner, founder and chief executive officer of Country Risk Solutions, here with me at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 Summit. The book is called AI Supremacy, Winning in the Era of Machine Learning. It's got a very cool uh, cover here. I'm going to bring it back to you. Cool. People racing. They've got flags made. They've got heads made of flags. It's so cool. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So... Help us feel good about AI and how it's going to make our lives better and we shouldn't be scared of all the robots. Well, I think what AI is really going to do is help the human race be all that it can be. There are pluses and minuses associated with this, of course. But when you think about unleashing human potential, this, in my mind, is what AI is really about. You know, you have such a fascinating background. We were talking a little bit about it before we came on air. You worked at GE. You worked at AIG. You worked for the Asian Development Bank. I I believe you've worked all over the world. So you understand that this is not a U.S. phenomenon, far from it. And the Chinese especially have essentially said, 
we're coming for you when it comes to AI to, to the U.S. How is it playing out globally, and, and who's got the edge at this point? First of all, I should say that the Chinese get it. They see this as the future. They're devoting up to $150 billion over the next decade to make this a reality for them and to make them the premier power in the AI arena. If you look on the book cover, you see that there are five countries in the mix, including China, the U.S., Japan, Germany, Russia. And the U.S. is currently kind of in the lead, and China's nipping at its heels. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind, based on the amount of resources being devoted by China, that this is China's race to lose and that it will very quickly uh, you know, succeed the U.S. as the leader. And I think it's going to stay there in big part because we're not devoting the resources and spending the money to make sure that we stay on top. So it's a great point, and I think everybody should you know, kind of – sit down and listen to this because we don't, I think, fully acknowledge the amount of money and effort and time that China is putting on AI. What will be the result if China is the leader when it comes to artificial intelligence? Um, I just think about, you know, one hand, one, one country dominating this world, right? There's already been a global grab for AI engineers big time and China's aggressively pursuing them. You know, Dan, Daniel, what does this mean potentially on a geopolitical level? That's a great question, and it does have geopolitical implications because the country or set of countries that rules the AI arena is going to rule the future of the global economy. And my concern is that not only for the U.S., but the other countries that are not sprinting ahead fall further and further behind. So the question becomes, if China takes the lead and they stay in the lead, will they ever be caught up? I think there's a pretty good chance they will not. They understand the stakes that are involved, and they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're not just talking about it. They're doing it, and they're doing it very aggressively through M&A, through the acquisition mm. of talent, through making sure that their graduates understand what AI is all about, et cetera. What does that mean for us? That's a very good question. We're getting all excited about DARPA getting a couple of billion dollars. Meanwhile, tens of billions are being spent by other countries in a single year. Well, and I do think about, Hank Paulson has warned about this, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, about an economic iron curtain, right? If, if He talks about if the U.S. and China can't get along. But, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways of um, the world kind of being divided up as a result of being kind of first mover advantage when it comes to technology. So my perspective is that this really is the Chinese century. I think people who don't acknowledge that are maybe a little bit delusional or maybe having a hard time falling off of our own precipice. And that's okay. We have distinct comparative advantages, and so do they. It's very easy for them to do what they're doing. They simply wave a magic wand, and being an authoritarian government, they make it happen. They don't have to have a lot of discussion. They don't have to talk about allocation of resources. It just happens. In this country, it's a much more different process. It's much more complicated. It's much more um, convoluted. And that, that's to our own disadvantage. It would be really nice if we had successive governments which acknowledged what it is that is at stake and were simply proceeding apace so that we have a strategy and that strategy is going to be implemented on an ongoing basis. But that's not what we have. So let's go back to where you started this conversation, which was a pretty optimistic view of you know how AI ultimately can make us better humans. One thing that we've covered in Bloomberg Business Week a, a number of times, and relatively provocatively, and I think importantly, is understanding bias in machines and machine learning and trying to prevent that. I know it's something you deal with in your book. 
are we worried enough about that and are the right things being done to combat that? So we aren't concerned enough about it. People should understand that there's bias introduced in everything that we teach a robot or a machine to do. They, they inherit our biases. That includes racial bias, by the way, which has all sorts of um, unfortunate undertones when AI is uh, put into practice. Uh, there's not much that we can do about that. The only way we lose bias, I think, is when the computers don't need us anymore and uh. they can teach themselves. But, of course, then they've already integrated the biases that we have into the process. That's part of human nature. That's part of who we are. It will be really interesting to watch the evolution about how bias either becomes enhanced or slowly disappears right. as uh, AI develops in the future. Fascinating. Such big questions. <gasps> Congratulations uh, on this book. The book is called AI Supremacy, Winning in the Era of Machine Learning. Uh, co-author Daniel Wagner, also the CEO of Country Risk Solutions, based in Connecticut, but here with me at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event in Washington. Thank you so much. Come back and join us. I know you're working on a new book. I won't spoil it, uh, but it's <laughs> going to be a good one uh, as well. Back to you, Carol. Yeah. It's certainly going to be a focus in 2019, speaking more about artificial intelligence. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg Radio. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. All right, so this is a very, very cool topic we're about to get into, Carol. I'm very fortunate to be joined by Diana Cooper. She's the Senior VP of Policy and Strategy at Precision Hawk. She's joining me here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event in Washington. So Precision Hawk, Carol, it's, it's about drones. Drone. I it's know. It's about drone drones. Company. We've been sitting here like, talking about drones, talking about a sort of rogue drone operation I was involved in a couple years ago. I don't think you were there, Carol, out in uh, San Francisco. <laughs> no. um, Diana, great to be with you. So tell us how drones are kind of coming into the mainstream, because you're talking about using them for kind of business intelligence at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So drones have been around on the commercial side for about uh, four or five years now, really started to take off about two years ago when the FAA put out the first rule for commercial operations known as Part 107, which kind of made it more accessible than through a very um, expensive and lengthy waiver process. And so the first applications we, we actually saw were in the agriculture space. So right. a lot of uh, farmers are using it to uh, monitor their crop yield, look for um, bug infestations, water damage, and things like that, and really understand where to do uh, precision uh, interventions like nitrogen application and things like that. Uh, more recently, we've seen uh, energy companies as well as insurance companies doing things like roof inspections and all kinds of uh, new applications coming out as well. I got to jump in because so I know I keep taking it back to London and our Bloomberg Breakaway event yesterday. You were so obsessed with London. Well, no, well, I am. But what was interesting is um, one of the sponsors was Dell, and they talked um, a lot about – they actually showed a video clip of two people getting in a car accident and how in a connected world versus the traditional world they kind of – the two drivers and one you know had to call their insurance a agent was on the phone waiting the other one the smart car said hey you were in an accident let me call your insurer the insurer gets on da -da 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 -da. and then all of a sudden they said hey we're going to send out a drone they're going to look at the damage and the drone comes and checks it out now it was a little bit extreme but as they said this will happen and you will like instantaneously be able to kind of get it all done, get an insurance adjustment or, or assessment, um, you know, like I said, courtesy of a drone coming out to check out the situation, look at the, the damage. Like we are, we are getting ready for a very different type of world, are we not? 
Absolutely. And that's that application is already starting to happen right. today, not just for uh, accidents, but, you know, for example, our company did a lot of work after Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, mm. and a lot of the areas were just devastated and fully flooded. You couldn't access them by foot, so traditional adjusters couldn't actually walk up to those neighborhoods and see what the damage was. There were TFRs in place. It was difficult for manned aircraft to access and gather that data. So we were able to fly in very quickly with drones, gather really good data, help people's uh, claims get processed faster and get back into their homes or get some sort of a remedy. So I've got to ask you, because you arguably have, like the engineers have a tough job, but you arguably have an even tougher job, which is to ensure that sort of the regulatory piece keeps up with where technology is going. So tell us about the latest there and what you're hearing from, especially from the federal level, you're based here uh, in Washington, about how much that the government is or isn't sort of embracing where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're lucky to have a very forward-leaning regulator, the FA, that you know had the foresight not only to create the first commercial rule for drones a couple of years ago, which is fa- fairly forward-leaning for given that time frame, but they also had the foresight to actually enter into partnerships with commercial companies like ours to have us test things like beyond line-of-sight operations to actually create the data so that they can have data-driven rulemaking for expanded operations. Uh, so we're pretty lucky in that respect. We want things to stay with the FA. Uh, what we want to do is try to keep the cities and the states from actively also piling on regulations on the drone industry. And so how do you do that? I mean, that would seem like a very real danger at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Feinstein and Lewis each had bills on the Hill over the last year trying to um, get the ability to regulate up to 200 feet, which we think is damaging from an innovation perspective. You can't build your business across city or state lines if you have to deal with 36,000 counties regulating your operations. And also from a safety perspective, you know, we have a highly uh, sophisticated regulator with a great aviation safety track record. Mm-hmm. Counties and states do not have that track record. And would be, you know, we would be seeing all kinds of accidents take place. What are the tricky things that still have to, Diana, kind of be worked out as we move into a, a more drone-prone world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the first is really remote identification and tracking. So there's been an informal holdover rulemaking for a flight over people or expanded operations because the security agencies have concerns. Today, if they see a drone flying over a crowd of people, they know that operation is likely illegal. And so that's a threat they need to mitigate. If everyone's allowed to do it under the rules, how will they know what's a good drone versus a rogue drone? And so really getting the rulemaking out for remote identification and tracking is uh, the next big thing that we're waiting for. And it's supposed to drop imminently. Great. Diana Cooper, Senior Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Precision Hawk. Fun fact, Carol, original name? Wine hawk because they used to look over vineyards. I knew you would like that. All right, little Bruce Springsteen uh, for us. A little bit of New Jersey here in Washington, D.C. We are, Carol, at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event. And as we've been talking about, artificial intelligence, so top of mind here. But I feel like the conversations are getting, in a good way, much more complex. And mm-hmm. a, a very special guest joining us, Saska Moisilovich, is head of AI foundations at IBM. And I have to say, Carol, if you didn't see this in our notes, has a really cool Twitter handle, Data Priestess. <laughs> that is amazing. Like, How did you come up with like that? the best. That is... I thought about data, data junkie. But <laughs> yeah. I like Data Priestess. That, that feels a little it's a, more... It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, female power, right? There you go. So tell us about this intersection of basically the human 
and the machine. You do so much work in this area. Help us understand kind of where we are and where we're going. Uh, okay, so um, I'm going to start where we used to be, which was like in 1950s when the whole field started. There was like this whole big fascination with creating machines that, that can think. Yeah. And on that journey, we've tried so many different things, and I think we're still very, very early on that journey. But right now, we, we came to a point where we suddenly have this huge access to massive amounts of data. We know how to analyze it, how to parse it, how to tease insights out of it. And we're actually beginning to think about how can this take us to be hopefully maybe better or maybe more efficient. And we're be beginning to, to kind of put it into some sort of a decision-making. Uh, where we're going, I think there's a, a, a enormous evolution ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And I think I would like to think that we, we should be the ones driving it. We should be the ones responsible for saying, hey, this is where I want to take AI next. These are the kinds of things that we want to create. So, for example, rather than maybe doing movie recommendations and taking us to a best restaurant can we put it to some really good use to humanity you know helping solve issues that i matter. love well like what i love that idea uh yeah so so i can give you plenty of examples because um um I run a program at IBM called Science for Social Goods, so I'll just pull a couple of examples. So one, for example, is how can we maybe mine massive amounts of prescription data or, or healthcare data to understand how people get uh, addicted to opioids because mm. different doctors pre prescribe differently, different people behave differently. And if we can tease out these patterns, we can actually come up with the shot at creating more pres uh, more responsible uh, prescription guidelines and, and curb the ep epidemic. Um, another example is, okay, how about uh, teaching computers to design uh, new drugs that can um, maybe help us deal with uh, antimicrobial resistance? Like, designing new drugs is enormously expensive, right. and it takes, like, you know, decades and an enormous investment. And imagine being able to do that uh, faster and cheaper and with a little bit more of help of kind of different type of creativity, that'll take us to a really new direction. And so what's your biggest worry as you design these systems, as you think about this interaction between humans and machines, where where are we most likely to kind of get it wrong? So, so I think um, my biggest worry, something that we always think about as we design them is what are the kinds of things they can be used for? Mm -hmm. They Can they be misused or abused? So you always want to think about, hey, what are the, 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 the bad things that can happen? Even if you design for a good outcome, some bad things can happen. Um, and quite frankly, another type of worry that I always have is, is this notion of, of uh, security and safety and cyber security and this, this idea that these systems can be hacked and manipulated just like other software systems. And that is, these days, a pretty big worry. Right. Well, and it's interesting, you know, we were talking earlier about artificial intelligence and um, China really leading the way, right? Deep pockets, uh, a lot of energy and effort and the government behind it in terms of really advancing on something like AI. And we talked about some of the geopolitical concerns potentially of, you know, maybe one country in particular leading the way on something. How does that factor into some of your thoughts? Just got about 40 seconds left. Well, I think it factors in the sense that we have to be ahead and that uh, it's something that um, th there is no boundaries anymore for scientific research. So just by saying, okay, we are not going to do something and, and th there is no, it's completely democratized in a ways that 
anyone can can develop new algorithms and we need to keep up with that right. and think about that right Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Saska Moisilevich is head of, head of AI Foundations uh, at IBM. You know, and as she mentioned, also the co-director of, of IBM Science for Social Good and IBM Fellow. Uh, just fascinating and really important research. Joining us here at the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 event. And Carol, I do feel like this echoes what? back to a lot of what we've been talking about in the pages of the magazine especially around things like unintended consequences, things like bias and whatnot. These conversations are getting much more sophisticated in a good way about how this technology is going to be used and how it's not a binary system between humans and machines. Listen, it's a powerful system, and you can think about all the good can be done, but we still have to kind of really understand um, because it can go astray, just like things like social media, right? It's good, but there are, are some concerns about it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. I'm Carl Master along with Jason Kelly. Let's bring in our guest, Andrew Simmons. Uh, is Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at uh, Morgan Stanley a- Inve- Investment Management. Excuse me. On the phone from Chicago. Andrew, is it, did I say it right? Slimmon? That's right. Okay, you forgive me. Right. Forgive me. I knew as soon as I said it, I, I, said it, I thought it was not coming out right. Anyway, tell me about this market environment. We have talked about there being more volatility in the marketplace. We certainly have seen it this year. We've seen stocks under pressure once again. Um, how do you explain the trade right now? Yeah, I mean, well, so look, in, in terms of volatility, I think it's, it's, it's a classic reversion to mean, which is last year we didn't have any volatility. So we were just due for more volatility uh, this year. Number two is, you know, we've had pretty good returns for U.S. stocks off those 2016 lows. So I don't think it should come as a surprise that this is kind of more of a mediocre, flattish year. It is a pause, uh, not the end of the world. The problem is, is if you have a pause in a more volatile year where the market's open, you know, somewhere around 250 days a year, you know, that creates a lot of a lot of movement. Yet, at, when we get to the end of the year, probably not much headway. And that's 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 the scary thing for investors because I'm worried that a lot of bad decisions are made or knee-jerk reactions are made at the wrong time. And I think again, we'll get to the end of the year, won't be that bad a year. It just won't be a great year. So, Andrew, I know that Europe is something that you have been avoiding a bit because it has, shall we say, underperformed. And yet it's very front of mind for a lot of us even today. You know, we heard from Prime Minister May a little bit earlier. She's got to deal with her cabinet at least. She's going to talk to Parliament tomorrow. Is Brexit the thing that could, once it's resolved, make Europe a little more, for lack of a better term, investable? Without a doubt. Absolutely. I think you, it's a very good question. You nailed it. And, and it, the way we see it, <clears throat> when we look at stocks, 
there's just an extraordinary number of stocks in Europe that are selling it. You know, very, very low valuation. Not distressed companies, just companies that, you know, have fallen out of bed because of Brexit. So I think that that's the type of thing that, you know, that, that needs to occur to have some rotation or people get a little bit more optimistic on these names. And I, look, the, 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 the return differential between the U.S. market and really the rest of the world this year is so extreme that these are the types of things that cause some, you know, kind of reversals to occur. But is it just a case of volatility, some extremes, but the world isn't falling apart? We talked to Peter Kopp. Peter Coy, our economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, he's got a story in the magazine looking at uh, the year ahead and saying, you know, folks, it's not so bad globally when you look at growth. Um, so is it a case of it isn't so bad, we just needed to maybe have uh, more interesting and better valuations, cheaper valuations, to kind of get investors back into the market? Or do you see some problems on the horizon? Maybe it's politics has played more heavily on other equity markets in the U.S., mm. right? We've certainly seen Asia and China. All the, all the worries about tariffs have much more negatively impacted China, Chinese stocks than the U.S. Europe has, been, has had this cloud of Brexit over its head. So I think it's more politics than anything that has weighed on really rest of the world more than the U.S. So talk a little bit more about China and how you figure out valuations there. And, and especially when we think about the Internet stocks, the tech stocks, you know, we had Singles Day from Alibaba earlier in the week. That gives us a sort of amazing window just by, by virtue of the scope of how much that they sell on a relative basis. Is, is there a play there? Should investors be thinking about that uh, as an opportunity or, or is it wait and see? Sure. Just broadly speaking, without getting into individual stocks, these this group of stocks, Chinese Intercept stocks, are down significantly. In fact, at the lows, they had underperformed the U.S. Internet Index by 50% year-to-date, 5-0. The result is, is that the PEs on many of these Chinese Internet stocks are half the counterparts in the U.S. And um, there's no doubt that there is slowing, there's, there's been a slowdown in growth in China this year. But what I find fascinating is some of these companies have just recently reported numbers. They were rather lackluster, and the stock stopped going down. And so I think what's happening is, if you think about it, the, the, the slowdown has occurred this year. So the year of your comparisons are going to start to get easy next year, and the stock market is going to pick up on that. And so in many ways, they have easier comparisons right. in China than, they, than the US, their U.S. counterparts. Great stuff. Andrew Sliman, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager for Morgan Stanley Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Chicago. So, Carol, so many what? inputs, it feels like, right now in this, yeah. as you said at the top, much more volatile market. Yeah, absolutely. And can I just say that one of the stories that has caught my attention, I ran into Simone Foxman, I mentioned it earlier, is this story yeah. with Sam Zell, who is apparently increasingly looking for exits out of, outside of his real estate empire. And so he's sold or plans to sell stakes in at least four companies since October of 2017. This is according to our own Bloomberg data. And in the same period, uh, his company has announced uh, one new investment. So I just think 
I go back to the top of the real estate market and Simzel selling his REIT uh, and just getting out before everything started to come undone. And I just think, you know, we've got to watch these big investors for signs of what they're doing because I think it could be an indication of maybe what they're thinking is to come. And well, been, and, and to that well. point, Stevie Cohen, yeah. just a few stories down from that, saying bear market coming in two years, another uh, yeah. investor that people certainly tune into. You are listening to a Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly, Carol Masters in New York, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.